0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Stuart wouldn't, Kirsten wouldn't, but Silverwood, England's new day dawned with the passion of the Chris. Rabada has India KG before Mayank Pujara and Kohli smite Pune, South Africa. And in a bid to save English women's cricket from being terminated, Claire Connor says, "Come with me if you want to live." This is the Guerrilla Cricket Podcast's account.
0: Cricket. This is all about cricket, Gorilla Cricket, not just runs and wickets, so come and get it,
1: Gorilla Cricket Podcast. Welcome to the Gorilla Cricket Podcast, the weekly podcast from the world's leading independent cricket commentary provider, Gorilla Cricket. We're recording on the evening of Thursday the 10th of October 2019, and wish a very happy 69th birthday to former New Zealand all-rounder Lance Cairns. We might actually enjoy listening to this podcast since he's also celebrating 10 years since having a cochlear implant. Ooh, did you know Lance Gares was almost deaf for his whole career and beyond? It's a bloody impressive cricketer, considering. I'm your host, and Pandey and I'm joined by someone who's doing his bit to keep cricket alive in the heart of at least one young woman, Tim Parks. Hello. And say what he sees, this generation's Roy Walker, Nigel Hendo Henderson. Roy Walker? It's good, but he's not right. <laughs> Before we get into the podcast proper, Congratulations to Sri Lanka's men for inflicting Pakistan's first whitewash in Pakistan in any format since 2000, all without 10 of their best players. Congratulations to Chamari Althapothu for her continued excellence in a Sri Lanka women's team that got steamrolled yet again by Australia. The Southern Stars racked up a world record 18th consecutive ODI win. And congratulations to Queensland's USA international seamer Cameron Gannon, who dismissed Steve Smith for a duck, albeit with the rankest of rank wide long hops. Uh, so, uh, we'll start with the news out of ECB Central. The new England coach is going to be uh, former, occasionally England, and mostly Yorkshire seamer, Chris Silverwood, uh, formerly uh, the England uh, bowling coach, and before that, a coach in Essex. He had a very impressive record with Essex. got them up in uh, 2016 and got them to their, their first title in a long time in 2017, and so sort of his legacy has continued with the, uh, with the double that they've done. Uh, this year, but England deciding not to go for a couple of uh, or for a couple of big name uh, outside candidates and one in Alex Stewart turning them down because of the touring demand. So just your your thoughts on uh, firstly on, on Silverwood and kind of what the direction uh, or what this means for England's future direction and I guess also on kind of recruiting from within. Oh, it's, it's an
2: interesting one isn't it? I mean a, a lot of the, uh, the talk that I've seen um, around it is that the you know, perhaps he's almost there by default because there just aren't the candidates coming forward, uh, partly because of those demands. And um, it, it, it's a difficult one. He's been involved with the setup up for a while, and I saw an article this week by Mike Atherton in The Times where um, he wasn't criticising Silverwood at all. I mean, he was pointing out his good uh, um, qualities, but also wondering whether, having been part
1: of this England team for a little while now, um, they could have done with a. An, uh, an input
2: for a, of, of new blood or a little bit of maybe some new thoughts. Um, he is, of course, a bowling coach who's going to be turning, turning into a head coach. Um, you know, Do you want a
0: bowling coach at the top when when the problem really seems to be with your batting? Well, oh, yeah, that's one of the things I was going to pick up on was, um, yeah, a bowling coach who's uh, trying to revive uh, a failing batting unit. I suppose it comes down to when you think that the coach's job is actually a misnomer. Is it his job to coach or is it to foster this in this nebulous concept of team culture, team spirit, and uh, uh, keep everyone focused on their roles. I mean, it, you know, for most of the players in the squad, adaptive will be able to teach them a lot more than they already know. Um, so I, I'm not sure. Well, I, th- I
2: think I, I read that you know he, he he has a similar sort of approach in one respect to Bayless. He's, he's kind of laid back. He doesn't force himself upon people, but he's there to help if if needs be. Um, yeah, I mean, you argue, don't you, that, that the coach's job at the highest level is, is not actually to be a coach, mm. uh, as you're saying. But I wonder about that because, let's face it, we have an England um, top order that um, is regularly getting out for 30. You know, the first yeah. three wickets are going for 30. do Don't There
1: has to be some uh, element of uh, technical problems going
2: on there that, mm. that need to be addressed. And have we got the people to address them? We've still got Greg Thorpe as um,
1: the batting coach, and, our, you know, I'm surprised he hasn't done better, because I'm a great admirer of right? mm-hmm. well, He's not really been in the position long enough to, yes, really. to judge him, really. I mean, England have decided to address their top order failings by going another way, by a of personnel. Mm. Uh, so they've brought in Dominic Sibley he and Burns are going to be opening uh, in New Zealand, and probably beyond uh, as well. Denley's going to go up to three routes, going to come to four, where he appears to be a lot more comfortable batting, so maybe that's another way
0: around it. Yeah, I mean, it, in many ways it's hard to tell. What the coach's role is exactly—not you know, being in the privileged position of being, you know, in, a, in an England squad in the setup. But It's um, throwdowns, isn't it? <laughs> kind of, yeah, with one of those dog, dog, dog tools. To... You know, India
1: actually—India hired a coach who is specifically not just throwdowns, but left-arm throwdowns—to try and combat um, left-arm bowlers during the World Cup. And England, England have the ability to do that as well with the money that's, that's going around. But, but yeah, it's—it's it's, pro- its not the kind of. Coaching that would you be used to at school or even kind of good club level where you'd hire a uh, you know a, a former county pro maybe um, to to be that that head coach to really work on those those technical aspects. Like some of that will happen, but a lot of these players have their own coaches that they go to um, for that kind of thing. The, the yeah, you do not have that,
2: that situation when you're on tour, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you might get on the phone to them or you might get on Skype or whatever, and, and if you've got a specific problem that you you want to talk about. Um, but that kind of undermines,
1: in a way, doesn't it? The, the notion of a coach is being paid five hundred grand a year. Well, yeah, I think the I think the strategic and the the mental side, particularly when you're on tour, is of defining what that strategy is. You taking all the inputs that that you have available to you that perhaps you didn't have as a coach um, in in times gone by. Take all that and developing developing a strategy, getting players to buy into that. Uh, and also, kind of forming a good working relationship with the captive. Well, I think it's almost you're almost de- developing a role of dressing room manager mm-hmm. as much as anything. And, and, and we
2: hear this talk. We heard it with Trevor it's hearing it to a certain extent now with Chris Silverwood. It's about the atmosphere he creates. I guess like, oh, that is an important thing. If you can keep your team relaxed, um,
0: then that, that's you know worth its weight in gold. Exactly. I mean, the, I think the other problem is that well, lots of the different roles in in the, the in the setup. Uh, to, not quite sure where the boundaries are. You know, there's such an element of selection to all of it, an element to coaching, an element to being head coach of management. You know, we're not entirely sure without having seen a job description or it being fully explained by anyone what those different roles and responsibilities are and why it justifies getting paid half a million quid to, to fill. Well, it also make, makes, you,
2: it makes you wonder, um, you know, will he have, there was talk about the fact that, you know, he knows the county game so well and he'll know... Um, players perhaps better than someone like Troy O'Bailis, mm. for sure. Um, and so what role does he play in selection, um, further down the line? Presumably he had no role in the selection of the, the team that's going to New Zealand, but uh, further down the line, is he going to have a lot of input with the likes of Ed Smith and, and James Taylor? Again,
1: these are all unknowns, perhaps unknowable to a certain extent, it, yeah. but as, long as the important thing is as long as he is clear on his, on his job description. And it does seem like the ECB had an idea of what they wanted, from the coach we hear the reason Gary Kirsten didn't get the job partly he did an impressive interview but also partly you know he was more in favor of having split coaches um, having the uh, a white ball coach and a red ball coach which is something that I don't think we've quite seen an international team do that in a formal way but we've seen teams like we've seen Australia for example we've seen in we saw the times when Darren Lehmann would take a would take a series off and, and someone would come in justin Langer, usually actually. Uh, in fact we've seen indication uh, instances where Ashley Giles or Paul Farbrace has taken on a, uh, a bigger role in England in the past but Gary Kirsten wanted that to be the model in a formal capacity uh, England didn't so they decided to give it to someone who was willing to do all of those formats and you know that that's an important part of it as well is that how do you um, you know I don't really buy this idea that you have to focus on either red ball cricket or white ball cricket a good team in England are a team with huge resources at their disposal should be able to be good and competitive across those, those formats. I think
2: a, a lot of it depends. I mean, if you, if you talk about splitting the roles, I think it depends on how close your one-day or short-form team is aligned to the test team. I mean, if it's very similar, then um, it, it's possible that perhaps having uh, having someone new come in to give you some new ideas might work. On the other hand, you know, if you're used to somebody, uh, you might be comfortable with them in the dressing room um, all the time, as opposed to sort of
1: switching between I mean, people. I, mean, I would argue it seems to make more sense if the team is drastically different. I mean, this England T20 team that they picked for the New Zealand tour is quite a bit different from the from the Test team. There is the argument that maybe different coaches for different formats with the same group of players, um, or largely the same group of players, could lead to mixed messages. I don't know if that's quite the case any more than just then we'd already be the case on switching between those formats.
0: You know, it's also a tacit judgment on the uh, success of the year. So, you know, looking back, you, you know, we struggled with the batting and test particularly, but we've come out of a, a tough Asher series after World Cup that we've won with a draw. And I suppose it's, you know, if whether you think that's just a something that can be built on, improved, remedied, if you like, in future with the, basically the same personnel, or whether you have to bring in that fresh run, and be bringing fresh blood, uh, fresh blood can be extraordinarily dis- destabling, even if you have confidence in the the, the the coach coming in that they've got great ideas. You know, it's a it's a careful balance thing between invigorating a side and destabilising it. And depends
2: how, how a how good a side is at absorbing new personnel. Mm-hmm, um, you know, whether they're particularly welcoming, whether they feel that they're they're under threat from new people that come in. It, I mean, there are so many things. Um, psychological of this game and what goes on in the dressing room with selection and, and who's gonna make it into the final eleven must have an enormous bearing, I think. I and mean, we yeah. you know, even if you are a pretty mentally strong guy, uh, you know, most people have doubts to
1: some extent. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure, and on on long tours or not even long tours, but very, very crammed tours where you don't get a lot of time to mentally switch off. You don't get a lot of time between games or if you're in a larger country, you're travelling all the time in between in between games. That that role of keeping everyone um, uh, relaxed and able to do their jobs and not sort of burn out. And we've seen with the um, we knew some of this already, but you know the release of the film The Edge has uh, has shown quite how exacting those, particularly the mental emotional demands were on that Andy Flower era England team, and it just. While it worked spectacularly for a certain amount of time, even that same group of really good England players, and that was a really good England team, just couldn't keep up that level of exertion uh, and sort of mental output, as the it The intensity were. There, I suppose. Yeah, it absolutely, for, for, for very long. and. That team had to be sort of completely restructured. Well, I saw
2: um, an interesting article which, which has some sort of crossovers, I suppose, talking about uh, Pochettino at Spurs and whether he's, um, you know, uh, come to the end of his of the road with them. And uh, a reporter saw said that basically uh, Alex Ferguson used to say that five years was was when you come to the end of it with, with a particular group of players. And, that, and so if you are stuck together for a very long time. If there are any problems between any individuals, those things are going to get exacerbated over time, I think, aren't they? Because the longer you have to, you know, if you have to spend five years in a dressing room with uh, Kevin Peterson, even though it wasn't easy for him <laughs> being uh, Kevin Peterson in the England <laughs> dressing room, um, you know, that can all went well it. And McBride being incredibly grumpy all the time. Well, if that's right, yeah. yeah I mean, um, yeah, and I just think we've all played in. You know, club teams, and, and, and even on a Saturday afternoon, we can get, you know, seeing someone once a week, we can get fed up with them. So, mm-hmm. if you imagine you're traveling around the world with them, it, it can, it surely can wear on you psychologically. I'm just interested in the what,
1: to what extent Chris Silver is going to be able to make this his team, and how quickly, and how quickly he and Joe Root are going to be able to establish a partnership. Because the, the best teams of, of recent times have had a very clear and very well functioning partnership between the coach and the captain. You think it's just purely in England terms of Sane and Fletcher uh, for a a very long time. Strauss and Flower um, for a very long time. Um, And you look at other countries as well. Um, Brendan McConnell and then came Williamson with Mike Hessen. Um, Australia a little bit less so because that team was kind of running itself to some extent. But you know, John Buchanan had to be there to some extent just to as much as anything else, to just not let the egos completely take over. Um, But that it's hard to see exactly where whether um, Joe Root or Trevor Bayliss whether they were quite on the same page all the time. Um, you know, actually, it was sort of, we'll come on to the, in- the India, South Africa. We saw this a little bit in the first test where Faf du didn't seem to quite have faith in the bowling attack that had been selected, and you do see occasions like that. You, the most famous example I think for England is Simon Kerrigan, where it sort of became obvious quite quickly that uh, Alistair Cook didn't have any faith at all in Simon Kerrigan. And, that's, and he sort of got caught in the middle of this, uh, this confused selection policy. Well, I think we've had um, um, incidences where um, a
2: captain hasn't really seen a player before, he's been selected mm. for the test mm. side or the ODI side. So it's very difficult for him uh, to judge on what he sees in the net, uh, necessarily, if that's the first time he's laid eyes on this, on this guy. So you can understand if, if he starts poorly as, as Simon Kerrigan did, that it's very difficult for him to have confidence, or he's going to lose confidence quite quickly. Um, you've got to have a, a sort of very strong-minded captain, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that Asma Cook was a pretty strong-minded captain. But if even he um, decided that he hadn't got faith in him, I mean that, that says something in itself, doesn't it? Or perhaps he wanted someone else to be in the eleven. Well, there there is that. I mean, you know,
1: yeah. Again. I always think that captains should have an input into selection. Yeah, I think they do in pretty much all circumstances. They very rarely have a vote per se, but they always have an input because you know those are the. It's the captain who will have to be setting the strategies on the on the field and you know, deciding who to bowl when. Obviously, yes, some input from the coaching and from the, from the analysis and you know you set your plans. to you know, we'll bring this guy on when this guy comes out to bat. But ultimately, you've got to be able to make those decisions in the field and. Yeah, yeah, you're
0: right. It would be it would be weird if a captain was just sort of given a team and then said go for it. Yeah, and or given plans to do on the field. You know, if it's an ODI, you know, plan bowling change and that. can't take the power of the captain's hands. I think you know it's important to have to have the coach and the captain signing up to the same plan, being open about what that is, but also giving the captain licence to go off script to change the plan to own it. And, to, and to fail potentially and not be afraid that that's going to have. Um, repercussions, and so that's the foundation of a strong coach-captain relationship.
1: Well, yeah, we and you know uh, another example, um, Morgan and Bayliss. Morgan and Baylis. Um, so you know Trevor Baylis understood the white ball game very well um, at both ODI and T Twenty level. You know he had great, good success with that Sri Lanka team. Won the IPL a couple of times with KKR. Um, but he and you know some of this has got a little bit mocked a little bit. You know the whole thing about scented candles and yucca plants and all this and whale music and all that, but. You know, Trevor Bayless was able to step back and say once I've given these plans to, once we as a, as a group have developed these plans, it's up to Owen Morgan then to, uh, to execute those, to get the players to buy into it and give complete faith to Owen Morgan, who then can show complete faith in somebody like Ardell Rashid, who a lot of England captains uh, had not really backed, but, you know, look at the results. Um, but what Morgan and Rashid were able to get out of each other. I think, I mean, I think capitalism has changed so
2: much. I mean, our, our, the capitalists we most admire, you go back to, to my youth, and someone like Mike Brealey, because he felt that Mike Brealey was a, a, a man who acted on gut instinct, who understood, you know, he it it would sort of absorb an idea. It, it, it wasn't something that was uh, pressed home by studying um, hours and hours of footage. He just sensed something, he just sensed a, a weakness. Um, he might have seen a bowler just turning the ball away from the right hander, and you know he might have been you thought I've got to bring on a quicker bowler, or someone might be pushing him to bring bring on a quicker bowler, but he sticks with that with that spin of say um, and gets that wicket. It's just that sense of um, I do it's, it's 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 something that's that's almost born into you, I, I suspect. Whereas these days the coach I think has much more input because. He 's the man sitting in the dressing room looking at the footage. I mean the captain's got his job on out on the field he 's not going to have so much time to go and, and, and run through mm-hmm. um, all this video footage and all the stats that have been uh, brought to bear on a situation and so I think you know I, I personally um, have a sort of a difficult relationship with stats and data because I love the idea of the captain who can just act on instinct and um, it takes something away from the game, to my mind. If you're constantly looking at data and you're constantly right. looking um, for what that way, to me, it, I like the idea of being able to think on your feet.
0: Well, of course, ECB have got someone else to do that now. Mm-hmm. Mo Bowerd. Who's come in as uh, performance director. He is, yeah. Having been sort of the basically the head of
1: the analytics program for for a very long time, I mean, he um, has and his team have sort of developed pretty sophisticated models for to aid in selection. Mm. Basically, so going beyond just the basic stats that we all have access to, actually looking at them kind of in a more, I guess, applied manner, mm. um, in order to try, and not, you know, he doesn't have a vote, he didn't have a vote in selection, as performance director, presumably, he won't have a vote in selection, but he has some impact. And now, um, as performance director, he's in charge of that sort of pathway, and part of his stated job description is to bridge the gap between Players doing well in county cricket and then coming into the test team, I guess, through the Lions as well. Um, and you know, a smart use of stats and actually using them, not not purely being guided by stats that you don't fully understand, which I think was certainly the case with uh, has in the with the early days of stats becoming part of a game. I like, would point over someone like Mike really, You know, Mike really has played a lot of cricket and uh, and captained a hell of a lot of games and had this huge store of experience that yes. he was building on, and I think part of it is almost making it look instinctive when it isn't. And you 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 build it. It's like practic- practicing the ideas to be able to make it look instinctive. Well, that's I mean that's absolutely true because obviously uh, the likes of Joe
2: Root um, and other captains are not getting to play long form cricket. In, in that abundance, in the same way well, certainly not exactly. yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yes, And so, yes, you're, you're right in a sense, things that, that are, you know, that they observe will in some sense be recorded, uh, put into their subconscious, and perhaps come out at a, a later date. Yeah, you know. it instincts
1: just unconscious experience, yes. right? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, and if you can, uh, you know, a good team, in well, a way that, uh, we see this a lot in T20 cricket where, you know, there's a huge amount of data out there, it could actually be easy to become almost paralyzed by the amount of data there is out there, but it's about selecting what's actually important and instilling that properly uh, and, you know, getting everyone to buy into it and so that you can react very, very quickly, but you're doing so from a much firmer basis because you know that it's backed up by not just, you know, sometimes it is just a hunch, sometimes it is just a hunch, but um, but if the hunch is also backed up by the, by the data or, you know, if the hunch seems to correspond to some version of reality, all the better. But I, think the, I think the problem um, with that, I suppose we're
2: getting off, off, off the theme a little bit, is that if you if you have a plan based on data and, and, and the plan isn't working particularly well, you might be tempted to continue with the plan mm-hmm. too long, uh, rather than thinking this just isn't uh, just working for me and we, and we can't rely on that data, it's not gonna work today, or so we've got to think of something else. I think there may be, uh, with um, a lot of the data and a lot of the stats, there may be a temptation to stick with things that aren't working.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, the argument do, do you err on the side of sticking with a plan too long or not? I mean, that's something that, you know, each individual captain sort of has to work out. And you, you know, know you, you develop your own your own style to, to some extent. You know, I think you and among others were probably were critical of England for possibly not sticking with plans long enough. Well I was going to say that actually, yeah. I mean it, it seems
2: like a, a slightly um, a bit a bit off key with regards to what I was saying in the summer, and I think that was absolutely true. Certainly when it came to uh, the likes of Steve Smith uh, sticking with a, a short ball attack from round the wicket uh, seemed to me to be abandoned very quickly, that sort of thing. Mm. And, I, I, and I didn't think
1: that they um, they went on with it long enough. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it works both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, England are in an interesting position now. You know, they've got Chris Silverwood has somewhat of a new team, certainly in the white ball format, uh, to take and, and to mould as his own. And, you know, one would imagine he'd be given at least until the next 50 over World Cup and he's got two 20 over World Cups within that. And, yeah, he could have a lot of cricket coming up in the next... Uh, Sort of six months, so they they go, they go to New Zealand, they go to South Africa, they go to Sri Lanka. Then they've got the West Indies at home. Then they've got Pakistan at home. Then they've got the World T Twenty, and that's just up until uh, sort of this time next year. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and and as we
2: know, England tend to play a a little bit more cricket than almost everybody else. So yeah, I I mean that there there are a lot of demands on it, and 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 that in itself is a huge demand on the coach. You know, he's got to switch between that uh, that Test outlook and then you know suddenly the T Twenty. I mean, if, if you're going to New Zealand as we are. Uh, and we have got this um, strange schedule, haven't we? We've got five T20s followed by two tests. And so, I mean, that to me, I mean, the, you're taking the two most uh, diametrically opposed versions of the game,
1: and putting them side by side in that. In that but at way. least you've got five. It's not a case of you've got two and then suddenly you've got a switch. At least you can you can properly plan for that T20 series. And also, you know, it does make. There's two World T20s before there's the next fifty-over World Cup, mm-hmm. so it yes. does make sense to schedule the international. Um, in that way, Tim, your final word on, on Silverwood and uh, all things England
0: coaching? Well, look, I think uh, I think the question we started answering about ten minutes ago was, <laughs> you know, it, uh, how important is the relationship between them? Uh, it is important I think uh, that winning in New Zealand is very important. That will get them off the right foot and perhaps just ease a bit of pressure that's been building up over the Ashes um, and taking on from there. I mean, it's going to be difficult with new faces in the team, new coach, um, you know, get the team going back on the the punishing you know, circus train that is international cricket. We will see. We will see indeed exciting
1: opportunities, but however, challenge coming up for England this winter and uh, beyond. Uh, speaking of challenges, South Africa continue uh, to to fight, but come up against uh, conditions and losing the toss and uh, and a team in. Uh, very good nick. Uh, we talked to Daniel Gallen last week about India South Africa in the first test, and his prognosis was that there would be no issue with the ball, but the batting was going to be the issue. The first test kind of didn't work out that way for South Africa. They Actually, they batted with not with not inconsiderable um, skill and grit as super hundreds from uh, Dean Elgar and Quinton de Kock, but the bowling was really unpenetrative.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a surprise, isn't it? You've got the likes of Rabada, I mean, uh, Philander, who I absolutely love. Um, and, by the way, seems to have slimmed down uh, considerably. A little bit. Uh, whether it's just a sort of slightly um, more um, uh, crew cut on, on the hair, that, that seems to have had some effect on him. Um, yeah, I mean, you wonder about their spin options, don't you? Beyond. Um, Maharaj,
1: Maharaj, yeah, Maharaj. So, yeah, uh, Maharaj bowled over thirty overs on mm. the first day here at Pune. Yeah, they they did make a change to to the eleven between uh, between Test matches. They dropped in Piet, uh, who really didn't impress with the ball at all uh, in the first Test, and um, you could see Faf du visibly losing faith with him. He did back very well in the second innings uh, in, a, in a somewhat doomed course. Brought in the the, the genuinely quick Umrich Nokier, uh, who hit Mahendra on the head uh, and uh, did. Uh, back our colleague uh, a couple of times. Um, Mark Grabow also played him very well. Scored a, a, a flurry of boundaries um, off him. So they have made that change, going away from the, the second. The second spinner going back. The third spinner rather going back. I think towards what Faf I think might have been more more comfortable with. Um, but the the change for South Africa didn't seem to make uh, a huge amount of difference. It was Katie Rabada who got three wickets. Uh, Dismissed the top three. Dismissed Rohit Sharma with an absolute beauty of a delivery. Uh, Got uh, Chetheshwar Pujada uh, as well, and then Mayank going to uh, a second hundred in as many tests. Only the second Indian opener to score back-to-back, or hundreds in back-to-back tests uh, against uh, South Africa. Uh, Chetheshwar Pujada scoring 15. Virat Kohli uh, scoring a very fluent 50 indeed. India also making a change, dropping a batsman for a bowler. Bihari, a little bit unlucky to be. Mm. Uh, left out, bringing in the third seamer, of third place ball in Umesh Yadav. Uh, no doubt, Bumrah would have played. Uh, well, Bumrah would have played in both Test matches. I think, had he been uh, been fit. Uh, but Umesh Yadav, the beneficiary. And Umesh has done pretty well in Indian, Indian conditions as a uh, as a fast uh, bowler. But you know, the the first Test was dominated by India with the with the bat, and then uh, with the spinners and Mohammed Shami coming to the fore uh, with the ball uh, as well. I, I think there was enough for South Africa on a slightly quicker pitch and. A, uh, and a pitch that was uh, not quite as, sort of, two paced as the one we saw uh, in Visay, but it's certainly, um, just talking about the pitch, you know, the last Test match in Pune was an absolute dust bowl that started ragging square from, uh, from ball one. It's, it's just, it's interesting to, um, to see how a, a pitch can completely change character. Well, I I saw a little bit of the,
2: uh, of the day's play this morning, and
1: what did it seem to be doing a little bit off the scene at times? Um,
2: in the early stages, um, didn't seem to be any sort of aerial movement. What you, what I always love about Philander is, as you're watching him, you're standing behind him, and, and, and you see that wobble that he gets. So you're not quite sure which way it's going to go in the end. and he's just getting none of that at all. He was getting a little bit of movement, and he was very economical, wasn't he? I think uh, 11 overs for 13. I saw at one point. I presume he had more than that in the end.
1: But um, yeah, finished 17 overs, five wickets, none for 37. Yeah, So pretty good. Two point one seven over. Yeah, he and Rabada both going at uh, under three and over. Everyone else going. Well, Maharaj went at just over three and over, but Nokia went at 4.6 and over. Mutasami only won six overs on the first day of the other uh, spinner, uh, and Dean Elgar bowled a couple of overs um, as well. Well, also, you've got, uh, he's a left arm, isn't he? He's a left-arm spinner, isn't he? Uh, uh, the, the other guy.
2: Senna yeah. and Mutasami, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you've, you've basically got two left-arm spinners. You'd want a bit more variation. I suppose they would have had that with Pete, but if Pete you know, didn't perform well in that first test, uh, well, there are other options, really. It's difficult to know. Um, you know, they lose. Well, obviously their top off-spin bowler would be Simon Harmer, wouldn't it? But obviously he's uh, you know now a colt pack player. So yeah, for sure. I, I, um... With ambitions of playing
0: for England. Well, I mean, to yeah, be right. honest, again, and that's,
2: that's something I feel a little bit mm. unhappy with. I have to say, just because he's doing so well, really, oh, yeah. the England want to sort of scoop up that element of talent, and it may happen, of course, with with someone like Silverwood
1: and, and his connections with Essex. Who yeah, knows? Yeah. Harmer's a little way off qualifying yet, but on merit as a as a bowler, I don't think there's much doubt that Simon Harmer's the Best spinner yeah. in England. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's had the figures over the last three or four years, hasn't he? Absolutely brilliant. And
2: uh, you know, you just feel like it's a shame for South Africa to have lost a, a man of that
0: talent. It, it really I mean, is. Just one of, one of several, isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah the, the South African bowling socks England alone are, are amazing. They're yeah, sure. I mean, it's still a pretty decent attack
1: that they've got out in, in this test. Uh, uh, I don't know, as I say, I'm reckon Okia was, uh, was genuinely quick, but, uh, but again, uh, the the Indian batting line Manoj uh, while having not scored a Test hundred uh, in his career to date, uh, got a double hundred in Pune, got hundred eight uh, here, and you know we, we talk a lot about um, English first class cricket perhaps not being uh, enough of a perhaps um, either valued enough or or batters not getting enough. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the what the right term is, but the game not being set up for top-order batters, but, uh, you know, Maya Gargobala had to really bang down the door with runs in domestic cricket for years and years and years, Hanuman Bahari, uh, another one, and, you know, perhaps showing the value of having, um, to, to a similar extent, I guess, to Rory Burns, uh, of really knowing your game and really having all that weight of runs behind you before you make that step up. Yeah, it's got help, hasn't
2: it, really? I mean, <laughs> anyone who's batted it at whatever level, I mean if, you, if you've got a way to run, if you've done it before, uh, even if you're stepping up a level, you're aware that you can do it. And, and mm-hmm. having that in the back of your mind, rather than wondering whether you can do it and having to prove to yourself you can do it, uh, has to be a, an enormous advantage. So I think that if you, you know, we, we saw it even with the Australian Test team when they brought in players, you know, because they had such a strong batting line for so long, we saw really good batsmen uh, not getting a chance until their early 30s, you know, the likes of Hussey and the likes of uh, uh, and, and Bouges so as well. So, yeah. so you know, um, you should never turn your back on first-class cricketers that are doing well. I, I, I really believe that. Um, and, and, and so if a guy you know, gets to 28, 29, 30 and he still hasn't been picked up, he shouldn't give up, I think, because, you know, I love Stone when he hasn't really succeeded in test mm-hmm. cricket, but, you know, he had to come down to Surrey and to, to, uh, to, to get a chance and he'd been batting well at Durham for several years. Um, and, and perhaps you going back to the previous question
1: about Silverwood, he has that knowledge of, of counter cricket, so that you know he will be aware of those people. Yeah, sure. Mike Agarwal is 28 now. He had to wait his chance because India yeah, had a number of openers who succeeded to a to a point. Murli Vijay and Shikhar Dhawan and uh, Murali and uh, K L Rahul all did well up to a point. And K L Rahul at one point had a superb record. Murli Vijay was at, was very decent for a long time. Shikhar Dhawan impressed at, at different stages of his of his Test career, but. You know, Marlon Krokerwahl and Rohit Sharma batted absolutely brilliantly in both innings uh, in, in in Vizag. I was a little bit concerned, you know, you talk about experience. Mm. Rohit Sharma has only ever opened the first innings of a first-class game once before, this, uh, before this test series, and that was in the warm-up. I was totally amazed when I heard that stat actually, all
2: that, that particular uh, piece of information. And, and I, I was really pleased for Sharma because you when you're watching one-day cricket you, you think surely this talent um, has got to have some sort of outlet in test cricket. He can you know, he's not just a purely a one a, a white ball player. He's better than that. And uh, I, I was really pleased to see because there seem to be so many Indian fans who get on his back about mm. how poorly he's done when he's been given a chance to test cricket. I'm not sure how long that that will silence them for, the fact that he got two hundreds, he's gotta keep on producing. Um
1: but it was it was kind of nice to see him yeah, achieve. Yeah, and, and the authority he showed um it's not just the hundreds but the way he scored them and um, yeah, he showed authority against a, against a pretty decent
0: attack, yeah. albeit not one that's quite as good as some of the South Africa put out. No, I, I think that's where we got to a couple of podcasts ago. and Crucially, <laughs> I'm pleased to have been vindicated. <laughs> by, that, that's all that matters—being vindicated by Roy Yeah, I just written an article at the time about
1: how how difficult he was going to find it to make the step up, and you know, during the comparison to Jason Roy, who had some experience at the top of the order in first class cricket, mm-hmm. not that much, but certainly you know more than Roy Uh had ever had, and you know, you look Jason Roy, another player who's done superbly in in, in one-day international cricket, maybe not over quite as long a period of time, but still only, only achieved a fraction of what Sharma Yeah, I feel that. I mean, I feel I,
2: I don't think it's an exact match, really. Um, I think Jason Roy is a long way from being or having a defensive technique that will would make him a success at. Um, at test level i don't think that so much with with rohit sharma he is a very good batsman he's just one of those batsmen who gets himself out um i think and and and, and, and perhaps because he has got such a range of strokes really as well um uh, that he will you know perhaps he needs to rein himself in and be a bit more selective um, but yeah i don't i don't really take that comparison with with roy i can see that there is an element to that but i think that
1: uh, rohit sharma is a much more accomplished player in general yeah it was just it was a comparison based on to just purely experience and, and purely that thing of having of having done it for Sharma's overall test record is not bad it wasn't bad before the um, before the test series, a bit lopsided, but you know he produced some useful performances in Australia. Well another thing, I mean India seems to play a lot of cricket these
2: days and, yeah. and, and, and you have to look at how much four day cricket or uh, first class cricket
1: outside the test arena would something like Roy Sharma be getting these days. Uh, not very much for a yeah. long time, um, and it's certainly you know it's true for Akoli as well. I don't think he's played a Runji Trophy yeah. game since about twenty eleven. Right, well there um, you go, exactly. You know, and you do play a lot of cricket, so mm-hmm. it's not as though he's out of practice. But it's you know, my and for example, because he's only relatively recently into the team has played a hell of a lot more Runji Trophy cricket than almost anyone else in this in this Indian team. Yes, there's a possible exception of uh, Pujara.
2: Yeah, we we kind of sort of treat this as if it's a, a purely English problem, and I don't think it is. and that you know that you can see that from the from that sort of example of was you were saying about Virat Kobe playing hasn't played against since 2011. So, um, it's not. It's just about the weight of international cricket that's played these days in all the
1: different forms. Yeah, there's simply no time yeah. for these guys to be. I mean, that, that was kind of the point with central contracts. Um, more with the bowlers, I think, because you would see
2: bowlers just not able to ever get to full pace. But it does mean that you are actually learning on the job, as it were. Um, you're not going back to a, a level slightly beneath that and, and learning the trade. Um, of of being an opening batsman, for example, uh, you are having to do it
0: in a test match. Mm. I've, always, I've always wondered as well how much doing nets can make up for lack of time in the middle. And I get the sense it's slightly different batsman batsmen bowlers. I just mm. instinctively I think that batsmen will probably get away and make up for a lot of lack of first class cricket by just seeing off loads and loads of overs and nets. Bowlers I'm not quite so sure, sure because they never know, really know how many they're going for. You know, batsmen they go oh yeah that's two. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, certainly an indoor net is almost useless for a spinner, unless they're, exactly. unless they're focusing
1: on something, certainly I think probably from pitch to batter, you can't really tell anything as a spinner bowling an indoor net. It's no. all about how it's coming out of your hand, uh, really. But, you know, there is some, also something to be said about you know, getting your physical fitness levels up to a certain point I mean, and I mean, yeah, kind of grooving
0: your action. I suppose it's about the type of player as well. Some players probably might get a bit bored by playing a lot of first-class cricket, and it becomes yes, a grind. You know, yes, each play different. Some might want to, you know, keep it rare and keep that vitality up for each game, and, and, and keep it, you know, the, the spice of playing in the game fresh. Um, some might, you yeah. know, prefer to, prefer to put all the yards in and just always be on a pitch. But I think you know, we often hear
2: this thing about someone's looking really good in the net and then uh, you know they come to a match situation, and I think that. It's things mighty, are a, a crazily <laughs> different, aren't they? I mean, you don't have that pressure in the net. No, no, that's exactly. the thing. I mean, you can just concentrate on playing yeah. something natural. that, nice that when you
1: hear that is as much, I think, to sort of to, to let that player know that you're sort of publicly on their well, side. Well, yes, no, I know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is
2: PR to a certain extent, but, I, you know, I don't think there is any comparison between batting in the nets. apart from feeling that, you know, all batsmen like to feel bat on ball. Yeah, exactly. And apart from that, and feel like you're hitting it in the middle, I, I don't, you know, all the psychological stress. Is not
1: there in the next situation, no, uh, but it does have uh, it does have a psychological um, bearing. for some players, and, uh, as well, you know, it is important to know your game and know exactly what makes you tick. You know, Steve Smith will. Uh, it's quite interesting listening. To, it's quite interesting listening to him about batting. Full stop, because he thinks about it so much mm. that he's really sort of he's broken his game down to the constituent parts to a degree that you don't hear very often. But he was saying that you. He will. He said that he basically he he can't remember how he holds his bat. Mm. <laughs> uh, but then he will he will bat for as many balls as it takes, and it will be different every time until he feels that his grip and his stance and his backlift—those very very basic elements of batting—are absolutely right. And then as soon as he's got to that point, he'll stop. So that that net practice is not really about trying to you know replicate the perfect forward defensive, say, or you know learning how to face 90 mile an hour bowling. It's purely about psychological readiness and feeling ready when you go out into the middle. Well, I think those sort of things, uh, pick up
2: and grip, are actually quite um, significant to a lot of batsmen. And uh, you've got to feel comfortable in that. You've got to feel, I mean, and, and this is the point about, if you go back to the notion of what coaches do and, and technical aspects, is, the slight, uh,
0: sometimes a lot of batsmen, a, a very tiny change can just can throw you out completely. Well, this is, uh, I'm sure you probably know this, this is why the Paul Nixon, Andrew Simon sledge is the greatest of all time. Do you know this one? I, I don't know this one. one. So, uh, literally, uh, um, uh, Paul Nixon, behind the substance catches. said, hey, simon when you hit the ball, are your eyes open or shut. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he, could not, he could not hit the ball off the square for about... Six over, He should go. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. he got together. But yeah, yeah, just small things like that. That's amazing. I think you've actually got out for a scratchy twelve or sure. something like that. I, but,
1: yeah, for a player as seemingly instinctive and um,
0: yeah, hand
1: eye. Ma- make, make, make you make think, think about your technique. Yeah, Team and your signs. You know that. So probably wouldn't work on someone like no, no, Smith. No, no but, Yeah, uh, who is sort of so absorbed by the concept of batting. And throughout college to an extent as well, you know, there was an interview with him at a Masterclass a few years ago, saying that he would change his he'll change his grip as he's setting up depending on where he wants to hit the ball. Mm. But you also, I mean, this is the other thing with coaches, you'll find a situation, if, if you're
2: not playing well, well, coaches will will then find fault with something, and maybe there wasn't a fault, maybe you just weren't timing the ball or something. And, coaching and, and, for the sake of coaching. coaching well, mean, coach for the sake of coaching, but you're trying to help someone, and you're desperately looking for some uh, solution to what their problem is. In fact, well, you may just be
1: making the situation worse. I wonder if um, you know you probably better qualified to answer this than, than certainly than me. Should it be to an extent that your backlit and your stance and your and your grip should be so ingrained that you almost don't notice them when you're batting? Um, I
2: think it should be. I think really um, because you don't want to be thinking about that. I mean, uh, you will notice the difference. You will notice the difference. I mean, okay, the level that I played, I would no, always notice the difference as to when I've got I've got my backlift right. And, and if it was slightly off, I was constantly trying to recorrect it while batting in a match, and and, and that's not probably the place to do it. So I think you know that does spill over um, into a, a lot of players' games, especially if you've been brought up as a kind of player that is very technical. Um, you know, you've got players like the Butlers and, and various people who have got you know great hand-eye coordination. They've got fantastic timing. They see the ball really well. And they can hit the ball a long way. But there are also other batsmen, especially as an opening batsman. Um, you concentrate more on your technique, I think, because you're you thinking yeah. about playing moving ball and what and what you're going to do. And also, it depends on kind of how you were coached and what kind of outlook your coaches had. Yeah, I mean that's that, that, that's very true. But I mean, in, I think in the early stages of developing your game, unless you're incredibly naturally gifted, you you do
0: have to fall back on you know tried and tested uh, tried and tested technical efforts. Yeah, I suppose going back to the, in the way that each player is different in the the volume of cricket and the type of cricket in nets or not that they play. I think. Uh, that's fine. Having it the same every time is is good insofar as it doesn't lull you into being overly comfortable. You know, there's being comfortable at the crease and yes. there's being too comfortable at the crease. So you know, if it's uh, to the you know you you like obsessing over your grip and your back to the point at which you're shutting out some important information yep. that. The bowler's run up or whatever is giving you, then that's a problem. Yeah. Um, So I mean, but no one's hundred percent, 0 percent in either direction. You know, maybe a healthy eighty twenty is uh, is the way to go. Yeah. And you, I've had this with as a bowler. You know, not at a particularly high level, but
1: you know, you would think actually that to become a really skilled bowler, there isn't too much that you can think. You can't you can't think too much about your uh, about your grip and about. What you're trying to do, because all that stuff is really important. Like little subtle changes to your wrist position yeah. uh, can be absolutely critical. I um, heard uh, Ishan Sharma talking about how the work he'd done. Um, he came to Sussex at the perfect time because he'd already been doing some work on getting stronger and getting his wrist position right, so that he could constantly deliver with the with the wrist behind the scene. And then he kind of that was reinforced because he came, when he came to Sussex and worked with Jason Gillespie. You know, he's been a bowler transformed in Test cricket in the last. In the last couple of years, he's getting movement. He's getting accuracy. He's able to. Um, he's able to bowl long spells at pace and be a really useful bowler for injury India in pretty much any conditions. Having had a long period of time where his wrist got, he wasn't his wrist wasn't quite behind the ball, and, and you know, and that's those sort of minor technical adjustments. But it can. I've had a situation where I've got the years. yeah, and I've been thinking, now, how, which foot do I start with? Now, which which where do my fingers go? Where and. You're thinking about each individual movement so much yeah. that you can't put them together. Yeah, it doesn't become there's no
2: flow yeah. to it. Absolutely, I, I think that, that that's really true. Yeah. I mean, you, you use the example of Ishant Sharma. We, we, you know, a lot of people have talked about Stuart Broad and, and his wrist position over the last couple of years, and he's even come out at the end of this season and talked about how he improved. Um, uh, he was much more consistent in length, um, or bowling a little bit fuller uh, this summer, and that's why he's been so successful. So you know. I, the thing about technique in cricket is that you you probably constantly having to adjust. You have to adjust even more now because there are so many uh, different ways that if you're a bowler, that a batsman can play you. Um, you know, there are so many different shots now that 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 have come into the game. You know, from from the short form. So um, it, it's a, it's it's an ongoing development, I think.
1: Absolutely, and the you know this is we we talked about this for for quite a long time already. And you know, this, it's very interesting to, to, to think about. And I'm I'm quite interested in the development of technique not just for technique's sake or because that's the way it's always been done, but as a means to an end, which is ultimately what technique is. It's a set of movements and behaviours that enable you to to perform consistently. And and I think there's no greater example of that at the moment than Steve Smith. Well you can never you know as a coach you can
2: never really understand you, you can see things with Steve Smith and, and a lot of us see some strange things with Steve Smith. But you can't feel what it's like to be Steve
0: Smith and, and when he feels that he's yes. most comfortable. Exactly. And, and he's the only person who can really uh, make a judgment on it. And it's well, good coaches are the ones who know what to let go and what to change. Whereas, you know, we could all do coaching if it was reading the book and going. That's how someone should bowl. Mm. Your arm has to be in that position, that degree, that angle, uh, the back. And that and is how a lot of... of junior coaching works. Exactly. By the yeah, by the numbers. I I, I, I coaching cricket. I learn it from my book. You know. So, yeah, so, but I mean to be honest, I mean
2: you know this is. Turning into a, a, a wider development, uh, a discussion about the technique. But you know, when when you first pick up a bat, your natural inclination is to swing through mid-wicket, basically. Yeah, um, and, and, and and that you know, because yeah. your bottom hand, whether you're right handed or left hand, is, is is generally dominant. Um, I think that's sometimes why um, left-handed people who bat
1: right-handed actually have a slight. Oh, for sure. Yeah, if yeah. you were starting from the very basics, I'm right hand dominant. I should mm. be a left-handed batter because yeah. my right side is so much stronger mm. than my mm. left side, but. That's not how I naturally picked up a bat, and i was no, never, no one ever pointed this out to me until it was basically too late to change.
2: Yeah, exactly. And
1: I've actually found that the fact that if I turn myself round, my pick
2: up as a left-handed batsman is far more natural than it is as a right-handed batsman. Uh, and yet I was always, always was a right-handed batsman. So you know, it's a strange thing. Maybe if I had started as a left-handed batsman, it wouldn't have been so natural. You know, it's because you overburden yourselves with, with, to some extent, with technical
1: uh, thoughts. Yeah, all of these all of these discussions about about technique and about uh, how one succeeds at the highest level uh, and making that step up. Uh, not it's not just a purely English matter uh, that we uh, where these things arise. But uh, uh, we'll finish on a what is a purely English matter. Uh, England women uh, announcing uh, a new plan to uh, wait well, basically to catch up with Australia, which is the kind of the, uh, thing we ended the podcast on last week, talking about you know, and you mentioned it. a little bit, at the top of the show in Australia, 18 ODI wins in a row, a world record. Um, they were pretty dominant already in women's cricket, and it's just getting more and more the case. And it's, and it's no action, and that Australia have invested far more in women's cricket uh, in a more structured way than any other nation. Uh, but uh, England have announced 20 million pounds over the next two years, 50 million over the next five years, 40 new domestic contracts, Proper professional domestic contracts to go with the 21 existing central contracts, increasing the pool of players who can play the game full time. Does it go far enough?
0: So, look, I've heard mixed, um, mixed opinion uh, on this, and I've given the the 31 page document a, a good read. Uh, <laughs> from done. Uh, but it's well, there's a. Uh, uh, someone who used to write this kind of thing at ECB does write it for other, for other people, it's, um, uh, it, it takes a lot of brain out. Um, so look, uh, is it groundbreaking? No. And I think a lot of people are looking for something that's groundbreaking has all the answers. You know, largely, these are known problems and known, uh, known remedies. I think what this document does is important is acts as a touchstone and gives something for people to hold the ECB accountable for. Uh, and that's very important. Um, in terms of the amount of money, um, well, two things really. One, I think it's dangerous just to try and replicate Australia. Because mm-hmm. what's right for Australian cricket is not necessarily right for Indian cricket. They're a much smaller country, sport is much more ingrained in their national psyche overall. You know, in this country you've got to go over general sport participation, and then as a secondary thing, okay, how do we turn sports participation into cricket? Over there it's very much cricket, without having to worry about whether people play sport or not first. Uh, secondly, in terms of the amount of money, I think it's got to be a stage process. People are saying this is not enough, you know, you're unsure about um, how much female players are going to get paid. Um, uh, you know, well, it's not the kind of problem you can just throw money at. Um, you know, It's got to be a, you know, a funnel process, you've got to build from the bottom, and I'm pleased to see that a lot of the money is being focused at the grassroots participation yeah, there's a, There's a
1: stated target to try and increase the number of women and girls at all ages uh, playing cricket, and uh, a chunk of that is specifically focused on South Asian communities, yes. which is something the ECB are at long last looking at. Not all the ways I think that they're looking at it is are uh,
0: necessarily going to work, but they do actually they are now actually addressing it as an issue. Exactly. Well, there's the, the South Asian consultation, which happened uh, in 2017, um, two years ago, uh, was good. And you see a lot of good things flowing from that approach and this approach as well. So if the first time ECB's actually been consultative, um, so I did the South Asian consultation when I was there, and you know, that was us going around to cricket grounds and speaking to rooms with two hundred, you know, ethnic. Ethnic um, South Asian people in the room and listening to them. But I think these people have done that again here, getting the opinion, doing surveys, really gathering uh, the evidence rather than just presuming that they know what the answer is. And yeah, it's you know, what the problems are: it's participation, it's facilities, it's um, having a physical women's team. And I think they're addressing all of these. So, as I said, I don't think it's, you know, there's no. um, silver bullet here anywhere however it's good to see that they're thinking about it and more importantly showing that they're thinking about it uh, and willing to uh, invest and and take the steps that's going to yield some really positive results in a few years time I might have been
2: cynical but I thought it was was quite interesting that um, uh, this announcement of the the money that was being put into the, the game came so quickly on the heels of the revelations about the um, money that women will be getting in the hundred. Now, I'm not. I'm not someone who necessarily believes that they should be equally paid because I think that you know if you are going to talk about market forces, I don't necessarily like talking about market forces. But the big draw are the big stars in men's cricket, generally speaking. And so I think they will uh, will generally be paid more. But I thought the discrepancy in in the amounts was absolutely astonishing. Yeah. The, the
1: base women's salary in the hundred is 10 percent the value of the of the base salary. Uh, For the men's hundred, I thought that was
2: it was staggering in its way, and I I wonder whether the ECB were thinking to themselves, "Well, it's all right. We're going to come out with this announcement about how much we're putting into the grassroots of women's cricket, and that is important. I mean, but how easy is it going to be to implement? Because we have a situation where, um, in men's cricket, you don't have state schools playing cricket very often these days." Um, so how, how are they going to increase that participation, apart from you talking about going into South Asian communities and uh, various things like that? I mean, what you would look at is you're, you may be saying, uh, you look at the maybe the people who are coming through the county level and, and uh, international level for England are coming from quite a small pool. Um, so you know, they haven't had, may necessarily had have to work quite as hard to get to that level as maybe some men have. Um, I think the important thing for, for women's cricket is you, you have got to get more people playing, isn't it? but then again you know these days there are so many different avenues that men and women can take
0: sporting sports wise yeah I I think you've got to uh, differentiate between what's a general societal problem and and yeah, the ECB aren't going to solve the fact that people like playing computer games and <laughs> they, know. You know, they can only do what they can do and it's good to see that you know 20% of All Stars kids are girls mm. uh, that they talk a lot about going into schools. And, and Am I right in thinking that's gone up since the first year of All Stars? Uh, I don't know the stats from from personal experience, yeah, it was mostly boys I mean my daughter was, I think, one of two girls in a mm. group of, sort of 30 or two doing it. So that's that. That's one of the
1: ways that the ECB, and it was referenced by Claire Connor, she, she referenced it as a sort of uh, a little bit of a piecemeal, um, or part of the piecemeal approach they want to move away from. That she mentioned um, that at the, at the participation level, the KSL uh, at the elite level. And I, personally, I'm very sad about the loss of the yeah. of the KSL just when it was starting to get going. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about not giving things enough time to succeed. You know, three years is not enough time to establish uh, a competition, and it seems um, it, it seems like a, like a retrograde. Step, But, um, you know, it, it seems like it's going to be with the fact that you're probably not going to convince this or any re, any sort of easily foreseeable government to invest in cricket in state schools.
0: It's going to have to be external programs. Well, yeah, I mean, the DCB lean heavily on Chance to Shine, for example, mm. particularly in promoting cricket to girls in state schools. Um... Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's going to be a slow process, as I said. You can't, just in the way you can't go and buy fully fledged international predictors, you can't buy a fully functioning uh, program without building up momentum, promoting it properly, or whatever. And if, uh, when, and only when you're finished listening to this podcast, do go and listen to uh, my own podcast, The Broken Wicket. We did a women's special. About three or four weeks ago, talking to Raph Nicholson, Katie Levick, the Guardian of the Year before she was named on the Crypt of the Year, uh, and um, uh, Richard Clarke who ran Women's County Cricket Day, and a lot of these issues are explored there. It's it really, really speaking. There's no easy answers here. Yeah. Well, I actually referenced your, your podcast at the end of okay, uh, the, the episode last week
1: um, because we were talking about how you know how people catch up with Australia. Um, I'm looking at some of the things at the, the sort of the elite level, or the, uh, the sort of immediately sub-international level. To me, are a little bit concerning and a little bit perhaps injurious to the to the ultimate goal. Is that we talked about the value of the of the, of the, of the salaries in the hundred. Um, there's going to be a fifty over and then a twenty over competition run alongside the hundred phase over the next couple of years, and the the idea of um, Uh, Concentrating all the talent in the eight eight regional teams, which is going to be happening, um, sort of at the to replace the women's county championship. In theory, is not a bad one. Mm -hmm. Is that you concentrate all the talent, uh, so you you increase that talent you increase that element of uh, of competition. But those are only going to be semi-pro. And yes, I understand that it might be, you know, maybe they tried to push for it to be properly professional, but couldn't secure the funding, and something is better than nothing, and it is a base to build from, but it is a little bit...
0: I'm not sure that necessarily everyone is pulling in the same direction. No, you're right. It is the kind of initiative that needs everyone to pull in the same direction, and that goes for sponsors, for broadcast partners, for government bodies, for schools, for governments, it exactly. It, exactly. You, you know, it, you Can't get away from that, you need money, but it has to be spent in the right way. And the people who don't provide that money are either selling the media rights, and it's chicken neck as well. You know, how you've got to build up the game, it has to be good quality, but to be good quality to get people to invest in it, it has, you know. yeah. I, I'm firmly on the side of you know, if you broadcast it, they will watch, yes.
1: Um, and I think you, we see this argument in, in all sorts of sports, you see this in the the. The debate that's going on with the, the US uh, women's and men's national mm. teams at the moment—you see this in in all sorts of other sports. You see, that actually, in, in Australia. In Australia now uh, has basically equal to the, the or has created a, an equal pay structure, where the pay structure is developed dependent on your level rather than on your uh, rather than on your gender. And yeah, it took Australia a long time to get there, but um, you yeah, know, women women's cricket was massive in this country. In the early part of the twentieth century, mm. and was systematically stripped of uh, of facilities, uh, s- systematically not given exposure uh, for a very, very long time. And it may that damage may be irreparable, but if you don't give, it's almost like it's, it's almost like the argument with um, with countries who are relatively new to yeah. um, to top level international yeah. cricket, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and but you, they need to have that exposure, and if you and you, you know, of course, no one's going to watch it if it's
0: not on. Exactly, exactly. I mean, just see what happened with uh, England women's football team, the Lionesses, over the summer. Huge viewing of figures. You yeah, know. but again, that's you know, the, 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 then you come back to the argument of free-to-air um, exposure. Well, yeah, that's right. the thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and, well, that perhaps you really wonder. Should the women's media rights be hived off from the men's rights? Do women could you legitimately show the women's game on BBC Four or? An, it's While sure sure well, the men's game remains fine, it certainly used to be the case that
1: the women's game ran itself yeah. for a long time in, in in a lot of different countries, and you used to get regular women's test cricket, mm. which, when it was run by um, female-specific governing bodies, and before it was brought under the aegis of the ICC. And you know, one thing that has been missing from the, the ICC women's programs, and one thing that is missing uh, from from the ECB's new plan, is Multi-day long form cricket. Yeah. Uh, basically, England are lucky if they play England and Australia play, you know, a test a year. Yeah. Uh, New Zealand haven't played a test in a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, India
0: maybe play a test every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Well exactly. I mean also the other thing, it's not about just country catching on, you know, you can't yes. have England and Australia playing all the time. But I think India are catching on now uh, a bit more than they used
1: yeah. to. I- um, India's India yeah. India have, after a very, very long time, actually started to um, trying to untap the vast resources that they've got at their disposal, trying to funnel that some of that into women's cricket. And you know, the Indian women's cricket is team was very heavily reliant on a couple of players on mm. Raj and Jul yeah. but now you're seeing that other generation coming through. So and you maybe, know, maybe the, the women's
0: IPL is probably at least two
1: years over year. Yeah,
0: maybe now the onus then is not so much on you know the ECB producers well, I think it's a pretty good document laying out all the evidence and, and giving good, good weight to all the arguments. Uh, uh, you know, India are catching on, Australia clearly doing the right thing. Um, well, are the ICC in all this. There's you know, a bit of leadership from them, a bit more leadership might be... The thing the women's game worldwide needs to grow. So, uh, we seem to ask the question: Where are the ICC? <laughs> <to be laughs> <rejected laughs> they don't seem to be anywhere, do they? Really? I mean, they
2: just—they almost just seem like a figurehead organisation that, that just has their, their name up in lights. So, what do they actually do? Um, you know, we talked about it even with regards to men's cricket and supporting those uh, test teams that aren't—you know—stronger, don't have the resources um, to pay good salaries to to their own guys. You talk about someone like the West Indies, for example. Um, so you always you feel like. Uh, the RCC needs to intervene a lot more in general in, in the game. If you are a governing body, well then govern and, and, and do things for the benefit of the sport, not purely to make money. Uh, if you make money and then can reinvest that money back into improving the sport, then that's all well and good. But do we know that that happens? I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's an echo on the line. Gideon Haig used, used a few years ago, you know, um, you know, are you making money to run the game or are you running the game to make money? Exactly, um, But. That's a good note. As anything to end on, uh, frankly. Uh, we call yet again on those in Dubai to do their jobs. Uh, thank you to Nigel Hendo Henderson. Thank you. Thank you to Tim Park. Thank you to thank producer you. John. Remember, you can get the podcast before anybody else on patreon.com forward slash Cricket. Sign up at any pledge level and get the... Uh, podcast for anyone else uh, but if you don't want to wait uh, or rather you do want to wait but you don't want to pay uh, you can get it on uh, iTunes, Apple, Spotify or Podbean. If you're listening on iTunes please do please do give us a five star rating, leave us a review and uh, wherever you're listening please do share the podcast. We'll be back uh, next week with more uh, but for now everyone from everyone here at the Gorilla really Cricket Podcast it's goodbye! Podcast Network.